Welcome to the public morality. Federalism is the relationship between the federal government and the states. Its impact bleeds into practically every aspect of major domestic legislation passed by Congress. But as this concept central to America's democratic republican form of government slowly reaching a precipice, if so, what might it mean for America's future? Joining me to discuss federalism is NYU law professor Roderick Hills. Professor Hill's expertise is in public law, specifically in areas that focus on the division of powers between differing branches of government. Professor Roderick Hills, welcome to the public morality. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin by having you loosely define federalism in America. And I say loosely because it definitely goes through some sort of metamorphosis over, over, our, over our history. Absolutely. Um, federalism can be defined as the division of authority between geographically specified units of government. So we have the United States, which is defined by the 50 states in their collective territory. And then we have, say, the state of Minnesota, which is defined by lines on a map um, and a set of institutions that governs Minnesota. Federalism divides authority between those two bodies, the government of the 50 and the government of Minnesota or Wisconsin or Mississippi. Just that simple. Hmm. So when, when we consider some of the major legislation um, throughout uh, the American narrative, uh, whether it's the Social Security Act, GI Bill, civil rights legislation in the 1960s, the Affordable Care Act. On, on, on most major pieces of legislation, are there not corresponding questions of federalism involved? Absolutely. And as you say, over our history, those questions have changed because we fought major battles over the division of authority between these units of government, the national unit and the 50 state units. Of course, the biggest fight of all time was the Civil War. And the major question of authority was questions over racial equality and slavery. Um, and the Civil War ended with the idea that power that had previously been exclusively reserved to the state governments, namely power to enslave people or to ensure that they were enslaved and power to subordinate people based upon white supremacy, that that power was taken away from the states and the power to eliminate those evils was given to the national government. Now, that change, which is commonly associated with the 1868 constitutional amendment known as the 14th Amendment, fundamentally transformed federalism. But there's been other big transformations as well. And you know, a major transformation of federalism was the New Deal, um, where states had previously been responded, responsible for poverty programs. You know, helping indigent families uh, attain economic independence was considered to be pretty much an exclusively state affair. Then Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected, a New Deal Congress was elected, and they not only passed a lot of statutes that helped achieve economic equality, but they also created a Supreme Court through nominations and confirmations that approved those statutes and said that the Congress has the power to deal with economic equality, economic workplace regulation, and generally programs that deal with the economic stability of the United States. So that was the second gigantic transformation about how federalism worked by taking power that exclusively belonged to the states and giving it as well to the national government. And I wanna emphasize that both with racial equality and with economic equality, now, both the states and the federal government share power, where before only the states had the power. So, of course, New York or Mississippi can do its own measures to protect racial equality, and they can take their own steps to protect economic equality. The big change is now the federal government is a player in these areas as well, where they hadn't been before. And thinking about the history of federalism, I mean, federalism, wasn't that the crux of the debate? Uh, between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists uh, at the creation of the new Constitution? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's kind of funny that you mentioned those two names because the opponents of the U.S. Constitution were known as the Anti-Federalists, and they hated that name because they said they were the true Federalists because they believed in a powerful division of responsibility between states 
and the national government. They wanted to give the states more power. So they said, we're the real Federalists here. You guys are nationalists. The supporters of the Constitution called themselves the Federalists. They wanted a very strong federal government. Um, the anti-Federalists said, hey, you Federalists, you don't really believe in federalism. You just want to give all the power to the national government. This was actually the central debate over how the Constitution should be designed. And in the end, there was a compromise between the two groups. So the national government has both strong national powers, but those powers are limited in the sense that they are listed out in a part of the Constitution called Article One, specifically Article One, Section A. They list out 17 separate little powers that Congress has. By contrast, the states don't have any list of powers. They have everything that's left over. And so this idea that the states have what are known as reserved powers, just everything that wasn't spe specifically given to Congress, um, still is in the Constitution. And you could say that that is the anti-federalist idea, the idea that there should be a powerful place for the states alone to have exclusive power. And we also see that that that, that anti-federalist, let's call it the anti-federalist victory and the compromise we see it in the Bill of Rights as well as the Tenth Amendment. Would that be correct? Absolutely. The Tenth Amendment says when you read the list of powers that has been given to Congress, you should make sure that anything that's not on the list goes to the states. So the powers that are not enumerated in the Constitution are reserved to the states. Indeed, the very phrase reserved powers comes from the Tenth Amendment. And it's basically a rule for interpreting the Constitution interpreting it to preserve state powers. And, and, and I want to go back to something you said earlier. So given that that uh, the 10th Amendment you just, you just referenced, um, doesn't the ratification of the 14th Amendment with the due process and equal protection clauses also change our understanding of federalism? You sort of referenced on that. I'd like to have you say more about that right now, if you would. Absolutely. As I said, in 1868, the 14th Amendment was ratified by the states as part of our Constitution, and it fundamentally changes the powers that the states had previously had exclusively controlled. It essentially says now Congress has the power and the Supreme Court has the power to enforce equal protection of, the per of all persons in the United States, protect the life, liberty, and property of all persons with due process of law, ensure that all citizens of the United States have the privileges and immunities of the United States. These are powerful words. The idea is we're no longer going to allow the state governments to have exclusive control over basic civil rights, rights of liberty and rights of equality, that the federal government's going to be a player in that area and be able to veto state law, totally reallocating powers that had previously been understood to be exclusively state powers. So, so I mean, that, that um, what, what you just said, that was that like the official end? Because, say, prior to 1787, you sort of done a great job of outlining the history. Um, I mean, well, I mean, beginning, I should say, in 1787, um, we were sort of under a dual federalism, the idea that, that the national and state governments were, were equal partners. But the Civil War and its aftermath really sort of changed that trajectory. Yeah, I mean, here's the idea. I think the idea with the original constitution back in the late 18th century was there are these two governments, they each have their separate spheres to regulate and the national government can't really regulate in the area that the states regulate and the states can't regulate in the area that the national government regulates. They sort of have their separate turf. They're, they've got to stay in their swim lane. But what the civil war says is that the national government is going to have an oversight power over the state governments. That they're going to swim in the same lane. Or put another way, the federal government's going to be the, the sort of referee for this swim race and going to watch to make sure that the states follow the rules. That really wasn't the federal government's job prior to the ratification of the 14th Amendment. It either was a state power and the state said, we'll do it, get out of our way. Or it was a federal power, in which case the national government would say, hey, states, get out of here. You're on our turf. But the funny thing about the 14th Amendment, it says, hey, states, keep regulating, maintain your public schools, maintain your public parks, do all the things that states do. But we're going to watch you watch how you do it. And the federal government's going to make sure that you do it in a fair way, an equal way, a way that respects individuals, liberty and equality. 
That's a totally different vision of federalism because it layers one government on top of the other in a way that hadn't really been the case before. So, so it, it, it is stay in your lane, but, but would it be fair to say that the federal government with the, with the ratification of the 14th Amendment established a baseline that no um, state could go beneath? Would that yes, be accurate? Absolutely. Part of what it means to stay in your lane is to, you know, maybe the metaphor better, it's better um, analogized to a soccer game where the federal government is a referee and says, look, you can play hard. You can choose your strategy for playing the game. No fouls. There's a baseline of fair play that has to be observed in this game. You know, so you're not, you're not going to be um, allowed to maintain parks for whites only. You're not going to be allowed to have segregated schools. It took a long time for the 14th Amendment to be, to be interpreted in that way. I mean, the 14th Amendment is ratified and then nobody enforces the darn thing, you know, for more than a half a century. But by the time it starts getting enforced more and more vigorously, it's clear the federal government is a referee for how the states play the state government game and uh, can blow the whistle on a state that plays it in a way that's sort of foul play. So, so how... How or when does the doctrine of nullification uh, come into play as it relates to federalism? Well, the um, states prior to the Civil War had, took the, many, several states, mostly in the South. Virginia was a leader of this movement prior to the Civil War, took the position that the state governments had an equal right to determine what the Constitution meant with the federal government and the federal Supreme Court and the federal Congress. And so they said, look, if we think that the national government is taking a position that violates the federal constitution, we can ignore whatever the national government does that we think violates the federal constitution. Now, to be specific, this often meant that the state, states that took this position would say, if we think you are trying to encroach on our exclusive power to maintain slavery, we will have the right to veto those federal actions. That was really foremost in the Southern lawyers' minds. They wanted to maintain states' total control over the institution of slavery. They didn't want the federal government to get involved. And so they had the position, in fact, that any state government that believed that the federal government trespassed into the state's turf, which included, remember, the power to maintain the institution of slavery, that trespass would allow that state to nullify the federal law and even leave the union entirely. They liked to analogize the Constitution as a contract. And the idea was if one party breaches a contract, well, the other party doesn't have to obey it anymore. So if the federal government breached the division of powers between the federal and the state governments contained in the Constitution, the states could just up and leave. And the Civil War was largely fought over the issue of whether, in fact, the states had this power. Lincoln strongly took the position that the states did not have this power. Lincoln was an anti-slavery politician, but he said, first and foremost, I'm denying that any state has the right to judge whether the Constitution has been violated and then leave the union if the state thinks it has been. He says any such arrangement would lead to anarchy. That's crazy. That can't be allowed. And then midway through the Civil War, he said, and by the way, slavery has to go. Um, but at the beginning of the Civil War, he was perfectly willing to maintain slavery in the South. But his bottom line position was nullification of federal law because you disagree with it and you think it's unconstitutional. That's unacceptable. Forgive me if my next question sounds like I'm Monday morning quarterbacking here, but it, it seems to me that nullification uh, is a fundamental shift that's closer to the Articles of Confederation than it is to the preamble that sort of unifies everything that says we the people. I, and I wanted. Do I have that right or am I missing something there? You're not. I mean, I, I want to back up and say, just in case some of anybody who's listening um, is confused about what the Articles of Confederation were, that was a system of government that existed before the Constitution was ratified. It existed from 1781 until 1789. Um, and it essentially said that each state can veto anything that Congress does. Um, each state had a, sent a delegation to Congress and each state had a veto over what the Confederation Congress did. And the new constitution was designed to get rid of that system because if each state has a veto, it means nobody can get anything done. And so the government just couldn't function. 
during the period from 1789 when the new constitution is in place, replacing that old confederation veto system, until the Civil War, several Southern politicians and judges took the position that the states still had a veto. And that view um, was um, controversial. As you say, it was often called nullification. Sometimes it was called supersession. But it had much more in common in the view of lawyers like Lincoln to the confederation system than to the constitutional system. Most people then agree that after the Civil War, that system of nullification, or as I say, sometimes it was called supersession. And as you say, it was a confederation idea, the idea that each state would have a veto over federal law. That was sent into the dustbin of history in the view of almost everybody. Um, but that system was not sustainable. And it was finally rejected at Appomattox Courthouse when General Lee surrendered to General Grant. Now today, it is the case that if this national government exceeds its powers and trespasses on the turf of the states, that that law can be struck down. But it's widely acknowledged that the decision maker to make that call is not each individual state, but some combination of national decision makers, Congress and the president, or maybe the Supreme Court, but not each individual state. And the idea is we need one uniform interpretation of the constitution if we're gonna survive as one uniform people. So you can't have Mississippi have its view of what the constitution means and Minnesota have its view. That's anarchy. You know, it's interesting when you said that you brought up to the present moment, I'm thinking we, we, we started that question with the, something that happened before 1789. Um, you took us up to 1865 at Appomattox and when you were giving that answer, I was thinking about uh, Martin Luther King's keynote address at the March on Washington. And when King says the governor of Alabama with his lips dripping with the words interposition nullification. So even as late as 63, 65, uh, 19, in the 20th century, some states are still holding to the doctrine of nullification, even though um, it's not uniformly accepted, but states are still holding on to it. You bet. Um, one of the funny things about throwing things in the dustbin of history is somebody's always fishing through that dumpster to get them out again, especially when they feel that that discarded idea could be useful for them. And Southern states during what's sometimes called the second reconstruction, reconstruction being the period after the Civil War, when the old white supremacist states were supposed to be changed, 18, roughly 1865 until 1876, that first reconstruction failed. The second reconstruction is often considered to be the period in the 1950s and 60s when the old Jim Crow South um, was finally abolished. That period of abolishing the Jim Crow South led Southerners to try to reach back into those antebellum pre-Civil War ideas and pull out the idea that each state could be the judge of whether a federal law or a federal measure was constitutional. And I, I just said a moment ago, look, most people thought that had been relegated to the dustbin of history. A lot of garbage can be recycled. And um, this is definitely recycled garbage. It too was thrown into the dustbin of history after a fight, but it was a tough fight. And like all of these fights, it was partially legal, partially political, sometimes just downright physical, involving the National Guard and brave marchers and civil disobedience. Um, and eventually that idea was again, thrown back into the dumpster. Um, but I'm sure it will be dug out again. Um, sometimes these ideas are like zombies. It's really hard to kill them, you know, and um, uh, interposition or nullification. That's one of them. Well, all you need, I, I think all you need is a, is a website, two or three followers, and you, and you can resurrect anything now. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, yep. To the extent, um, to that extent, rather, uh, did it, how did it, did it, well, no, not how, but did the Three-Fifths Compromise in 1787 place the nation in tension with itself on the issue of federalism, in your view? Um, um, this is a very contentious issue. Um, There's so many compromises in the original Constitution that were designed to protect slavery. Um, they are written in the allocation of extra votes to Southerners, white Southerners, that were given the power to vote their slaves, that is to say, to get more representatives because they owned people. And so they were voting on behalf, if you will, of 
enslaved persons. That's crazy. But they got a lot of extra voting power in the South because of that. In fact, the South dominated the House of Representatives because they could count slaves who are completely disenfranchised as part of their population, three-fifths, as you say, of their population for the purposes of extra votes in Congress. Um, but that's not the only compromise that was there. There were the Fugitive Slave Clause of Article 4, um, which said that each state had a duty to extradite fugitives, people bound to labor, and send them back to the state from which they escaped. There was um, all sorts of limits on what Congress could do with slavery. Um, the idea was that Congress couldn't abolish the slave trade until 1808. That was written into the Constitution. Even after they abolished the international slave trade, the South strongly contested that Congress did not have the commerce power to, to prohibit intrastate slave trade. Um, and so every aspect of federalism before the Civil War was flavored by slavery. And the original constitutional design was deliberately designed to make sure that especially the representatives, the delegates from South Carolina and Georgia would join the union. And so the constitution was designed to protect slavery. I don't think any serious constitutional scholar doubts that. Um, indeed, at the time, one of the great delegates from Pennsylvania, an anti-slavery state, um, a guy named Governor Morris. I love that first name, Governor. Yeah. <laughs> but he gave an angry speech where he said, this constitution is rigged for slavery, um, that the members from the South are maintaining slavery um, and doing so by trying to get extra votes for enslaved persons and otherwise trying to control this process. Um, pretty much everybody agreed that that's what was going on. Um, later on, great lawyers and um, you know, political theorists like Frederick Douglass would say, well, if you read the Constitution spirit, not just all of its letter, but its spirit, its spirit is one of equality. But the word equality doesn't occur in the original Constitution. It only occurs in the 14th Amendment enacted in 1868, almost a century later. So Frederick Douglass may have been trying to put lipstick on a pig when he said the original Constitution was infused with the spirit of equality. Maybe that's too harsh a term. Maybe what he was trying to do is look at the good side of the Constitution, the parts that said we, the people, um, should be able to govern ourselves, and leaving out the bad parts, which excluded, um, or at least allowed to be excluded, a huge part of the population as being part of we, the people. And, and the way I've always looked at that, Professor, is, is that it wasn't until the 14th Amendment that the ethos of the Declaration of Independence with, with, the, with the liberty and equality sentence in its preamble um, wasn't placed until the 14th Amendment. That's a nice uh, way of putting it. And actually, I think in saying that, you're actually quoting uh, or, or your um, phrase in uh, getting the spirit of something Abraham Lincoln said. Lincoln said, the Constitution is a frame of silver around the apple of gold. And for him, the apple of gold was the Declaration of Independence. It's the Declaration of Independence that says all men are created equal, not the Constitution. And it wasn't until the 14th Amendment in 1868 guaranteed to people the equal protection of the laws that the term equality gets into the Constitution. And so in some sense, what Frederick Douglass may have been saying is the Constitution imperfectly tried to capture the spirit of the Declaration of Independence and only until the 14th Amendment was that spirit finally realized in the letter of the law. Would it be fair to offer that any discussions about federalism in the American narrative uh, be delineated between, say, pre and post 14th Amendment? Absolutely. Fundamentally different theories of federalism. We still have federalism today, but as I say, it's a federalism in which the federal government has a preeminent responsibility for enforcing the norms of liberty and equality against the states. And that just did not exist prior to 1868, prior to the end of the Civil War and the beginning of the 14th Amendment. Assuming we start the narrative uh, with the signing of the Constitution with, with the signing of the Constitution in 1787. Um, in your view, how have we resolved federalism up to the present moment? We haven't got to the present moment yet, but <laughs> <laughs> well, 
one way to understand um, the Constitution is that the letter of the law is written into the original Constitution, which gives the states and the federal government sort of different territory or different turf to rule. Then the 14th Amendment comes along and changes the rule to give the federal government oversight power. But none of these rules necessarily are fully enforced even today. And so just because you got the law down on paper doesn't mean that the law is actually going to be implemented. Federalism in these different contexts today um, requires a division of responsibility between the national government and the states over questions of what could be called political morality about equality and liberty. Not every state regulation violates the 14th Amendment. States have some kind of power to make majority collective decisions about how each state wants to be governed. And to the extent that they do so without trespassing on the values in the 14th Amendment, that apple of gold, equality and liberty, they're free to do so. Indeed, they have a constitutional right to do so. But to the extent that um, those rules state rules, trespass on those fundamental equality and liberty values, the federal government has to step in and veto what the states do. And you can see this kind of problem with rules about, say, guns and gun control or rules about abortion. So to the extent that the federal government steps in and enforces a rule that says everybody has the right to bear arms and states can't interfere with the right to bear arms, they may be enforcing an important principle of liberty protected by the 14th Amendment, because the right to bear arms is in the Bill of Rights. On the other hand, depending upon how you interpret that right, they may be instead not protecting liberty, but encroaching on the state's reserved powers that are guaranteed by that original 18th century document. And it all boils down to where do you draw the line on the scope of nationally protected liberty? Um, with guns, we people are hotly dispute how much of the Second Amendment, which was in the original 18th century constitution, was picked up in the 14th Amendment in 1868 and nationalized. That's just a gigantic dispute. Is the right to bear arms a privilege and immunity of citizenship under the 14th Amendment? Is it an aspect of liberty that states can't take away without due process of law? Well, that's a big fight among legal scholars, among judges, among politicians. And that's essentially the fight over federalism today, that states will say, we have the right to regulate this aspect of our existence because it doesn't violate any of the liberty or equality guarantees in that 1868 amendment, the post-Civil War amendments. And sometimes the federal government will say, oh, yes, it does, um, because what you're doing is regulating in a way that deprives people of liberty without due process of law. Um, it deprives people of the right to determine the time and manner of giving birth to a child. It deprives people of the liberty of the right to bear arms. It deprives people of a right to jury trial or to fair representation by a counsel in a state court. And that each of those claims is a claim about the scope of federalism, about the scope of the right of a people of the state to collectively govern themselves versus the right of a national people to protect nationally uniform rights of equality and liberty. Well, I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but, but it seems also with, with, with the 14th Amendment and the, the doctrine of incorporation, that also has a role in this conversation about federalism. Absolutely. One of the things that people forget is that the original Bill of Rights, the First Amendment's protection of freedom of speech, the Sixth Amendment's protection of jury trial, none of those applied to the state governments. They only limited the federal government in the 18th century, as the Constitution was originally enacted and amended in 1791, when the eight provisions of the original Bill of Rights were passed. The Ninth and Tenth Amendments sometimes are called part of the Bill of Rights. That's not how it was really understood. It was really the first eight amendments contained fundamental rights of citizenship against the national government. They did not apply to the states. States could deprive you of a jury trial. They could establish a religion. They could censor your speech. There was nothing the federal government could do about it. Then in 1868, that apple of gold, that principles of liberty were extended to the states because the 14th Amendment says no state shall deprive persons of life, liberty, or property without due process of law or the equal protection of the laws. And the question arose, what do these phrases mean? What does it mean to deprive somebody of liberty without due process of law? 
immediately people started saying, oh, look to the original Bill of Rights, which only applied to the federal government. That's a clue as to what the 14th Amendment means when we say liberty is protected against the state governments. Um, and the debate about how much those original provisions of the Bill of Rights should be applied to the states is still with us today. Although most of the Bill of Rights now are understood to apply to the state governments and limit their power. Keeping up following that, um, in those Reconstruction Amendments, correct me if I'm wrong here, but all three give, give Congress the power to enact if there is a violation uh, uh, of those amendments. Yeah, not only does Congress have the power to enforce these I mean, rights of equality, quality, um, liberty, voting rights under the 15th Amendment, which was passed in 1870 after the Civil War, not only does Congress have the power to enforce these things in the constitutional amendments themselves, but it was widely understood that Congress would have the lead role, that the courts would have a secondary role, but the major role was Congress's role to make sure that states respected equality and liberty, voting rights, et cetera. Congress hasn't always carried out that responsibility as the Constitution says it should, but Congress certainly has that power. Now, we, we talked earlier, I, I mentioned uh, earlier about the GI Bill of Rights, which on balance, I would say is the greatest piece of domestic legislation, you know, my, my, my thinking. But when you talk about the role of federalism, uh, when you look at what the GI Bill was designed to do, and you look at like its implementation, um, say, say for example, we we'll take one example that um, you wouldn't, uh, you if you were a black returning black veteran, you couldn't use the GI Bill to buy a house in a certain area. You were redlined in certain areas, and if the federal government doesn't step in and stop that practice, it becomes legal. Is it correct? Well, I would say, let me say that if the federal government abandoned its duty to enforce equality, as it often did, and it actually perpetrates inequality in violation of the 14th Amendment or of the federal government's own duties to obey equality under the Fifth Amendment, um, they become complicit and not merely complicit in allowing the states to do stuff, but actually encouraging the states to enforce white supremacy and racism. So the federal government's policies on underwriting mortgages and financing infrastructure and financing eminent domain were often used in ways that reinforced racial segregation, destroyed black neighborhoods. This is the federal government. It's sort of like the watchdog that's supposed to be overlooking the states and ensuring that they respect equality. And here it's joining in eagerly and helping the states or parts of the state, you know, the white part of the state, get rid of black neighborhoods by, for instance, funding eminent domain that bulldozed whole sections of Detroit and other cities, um, in part for racially biased reasons. So just because you've set up a constitutional structure, I said this before, I'll say it again, that's just on paper. It doesn't mean it's gonna be enforced even if you've assigned the duty to enforce it to somebody like Congress or the courts. Well, you, you mentioned something that I, I, I just, I think it bears repeating. Cause you mentioned eminent domain and you, and you just abstractly picked Detroit. What we're talking about right now was not was not a practice by the federal government exclusive to southern states. No, this was a court. No, um, it um, segregated schools, um, dispossession of black um, neighborhoods and families. This was something that was done by Robert Moses in New York City. It was done. Um, all over the North. Denver's public schools um, were segregated um, and Black or Hispanic students were assigned to sp specific and inferior schools. So it was done all over the North. It was done, but it was also done with the assistance and the connivance of the federal government. Um, and this, because when Robert Moses bulldozed Black neighborhoods or put um, Black housing in um, you know, one part of the town to segregate off um, from the rest of the city, often enjoying inferior services. He did that with federal grants. He didn't pay for it with local money. You know, so it's very important to keep in mind that there was a partnership in evil here, um, which I think the federal government is trying to live down and some states are trying to live down with remedial legislation like the Fair Housing Act. Um, 
but um, it was north, south, east, and west. The voting laws enacted by many state legislatures after the Supreme Court decision uh, in Shelby County v. Holder, along with the post-2020 election, appears to be an area where federalism in the 20th century, in the 21st century, I should say, is being tested. Your, your, your thoughts, sir? Yeah, voting is one of the weirdest things about our federal system. Because if you look at how voting was treated in the original 18th century constitution, the states had almost total control. They had total control over state and local voting, like voting for your mayor or your governor, or your state legislator. And they had a lot of control over federal elections. State legislatures were supposed to establish the time, place, and manner of federal elections in the first instance. Now, Congress could step in and they could replace those state rules for federal elections. They didn't often do that, but it, there were no federal constitutional rules regulating how Congress or the states controlled voting until really after the Civil War. Then um, after the Civil War, the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, all protected the rights of um, racial minorities, of women to vote. So those were important national, nationalization of voting rules. And after World War II, the US Supreme Court started enforcing the Equal Protection Clause to make sure that everybody had the right to cast an equally weighted vote, even in state elections. But by far the most important voting rights rules were the 1965 Voting Rights Act designed to implement the 15th Amendment's rule that says vote, the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of race or color. And it was a rule, a 15th Amendment rule enacted in 1870 that was not enforced at all for almost a century until 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was enacted. And that statute said, we're going to watch like a hawk certain states that have segregated and discriminated on the basis of race and have kicked black voters off the voting rolls. And we're going to make sure that everything that those states do gets pre-cleared by the federal government because we don't trust those states that have disenfranchised black voters. Um, that provision um, of, for pre-clearing certain states that had a terrible history of discriminating against black voters was called Section 5 section five of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the US Supreme Court in Shelby County struck down that aspect of the Voting Rights Act saying, oh, you've got to treat all states equally. You can't single out the South for bad behavior because the South has cleaned up its act and it's not fair not to treat South. And here's the phrase that um, the court used, put South on the equal footing with all the other states. And they said that's a constitutional principle of state equality. Some people think that they respected state equality more than they respected citizen equality when they got rid of that provision that said, we're going to watch the South with special care because they've had a special history of disenfranchising black voters. But, but, but also going back to your previous answer, um, in the post Shelby era, um, there were some there have been some states I'm thinking Wisconsin for example that have toyed with 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 voting with voting laws and they weren't they were and Wisconsin was never uh, a state uh, subjected to preclearance yes well there's another part of the Voting Rights Act that's such an important aspect of national limits on federalism remember being in as part of the 15th Amendment's protection of the right to vote um, section two of the Voting Rights Act says regardless of which state you are, whether you're South, North, East, or West, you must not take any action that has the effect of depriving any group of the right to cast an equally weighted vote. Section two, since the 1980s, had been understood by the federal courts to say, if you have some group of voters who are being shut out of the right to vote because of racial block voting, say all the whites vote together and always vote against the black preferred candidate, or the Latino, Latino preferred candidate. If you've got a block of voters like that, um, you've got to take measures state to make sure that the people who are suffering from racial block voting get a fair chance to elect candidates of their choice. That's how the Voting Rights Act Section 2 was understood in Wisconsin as well as in Florida or 
California, as well as in Mississippi. And that still is how it's understood. But there has been rumblings from the Supreme Court, certain members of the Supreme Court, suggesting that they might get rid of Section 2, saying it violates rules of federalism. Um, they might either limit it or strike it down as unconstitutional. And that would be a case in which they'd say, oh, the original Constitution's allocation of power over elections, that trumps or limits the 15th Amendment's protection for the right to vote in our judgment, at least as that right to vote is understood by Congress in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Well, well that said, um, would it be feasible under our current notions of federalism in your view, to have a nationalized presidential election that does away with the Electoral College? Is that even possible? Um, no, because the rules, some of the rules for electing the president are actually written in Article 2 of that original 18th century constitution and have not been changed. Um, they have not been changed by the 15th Amendment, which simply says no state shall discriminate or bridge the right or deny the right to vote on account of race or color. But the Electoral College on its face, as defined in Article 2, does not do that. If a state were to engage in a racially discriminatory way of allocating electoral votes for the president, of course, that would violate the 15th Amendment. Um, but assuming a state doesn't do that, there's nothing Congress can do to get rid of this odd system by which electors, rather than voters, electors chosen according to the rules selected by state legislatures, determine who will be the president. The states can change those rules. Originally, the 18th century constitution is originally enacted, gives states almost total power to decide how presidential electors can be selected. And indeed the state legislators themselves can appoint themselves to be the electors. So that the Arizona legislature could choose who will win the Arizona election for president. If it's Biden, Trump, um, the Arizona legislature could pass a law saying, oh, we'll decide. They don't even have to hold an election in which any voter gets to vote. That's how powerful the federalism aspects of our election system are in the original 18th century constitution. The only reason we actually have these popular votes is because states have decided to have them. If states decided not to have them, the constitution says they have the right to do that. I'm speaking with NYU professor Roger Hills about federalism, so the, the history of it in America. Uh, professor Hills, uh, it has been projected, most notably by uh, American Enterprise Institute scholar Norman Ornstein, that by 2040, 70% of the population in America will live in 20 states. Now, assuming that's true, it would mean that 30% of the population would elect 70% of the senators. Any thoughts on how this particular dilemma could be reconciled or does federalism as we understand it would simply reward the states for having reduction in population? Yeah, I mean, there's things that could be done. Um, one thing you could do is certainly amend the constitution to get rid of the Senate. Um, and um, its allocation of votes to states, regardless of their population. But that would be a very difficult thing to do, to amend the Constitution in that way. A second thing you could do is to break up the states. Now, federalism in the original Constitution makes that difficult because each state must consent if, if they're going to lose any of their territory. So each state would have a veto. If you broke up California or Texas into multiple states so that they would have more senators, you would have to get the consent of Texas and California. Now that's not impossible. You can imagine that if a democratic president were elected, that president might go to California and say, look, Californians, you'd have a lot more senators if we broke you up into 10 different states. The difficulty is that the political establishment of California might not want to lose all that tax base in that territory. Imagine if you are, you know, living in Bakersfield. Yeah, you'll get two senators, but you'll be a dry inland state without any major city. So you might object to being broken up in that way, even though you'll get more representation in Congress. In the history of the United States, 
no state has been broken up because no state has ever been consented to be broken up, even though they'd get a lot more representation in the Senate if they were. Those are the two basic ways in which you could get around federalism that's written into our original constitution. But aside from that, we're kind of stuck with a system that is deeply undemocratic. And that's simply because as originally written, the constitution is hugely biased against overpopulated states and hugely biased in favor of underpopulated states. And it's worse than that. It's also that the original constitution, and nobody really knew this at the time, is biased against cities. And the reason is that so much voting takes place at the state level. But anybody who's observed politics at the state level, especially I'd recommend looking at Jonathan Rodin, Stanford political scientist's work. Um, Rodin, R-O-D-D-E-N, points out that if you vote at the state level for anything, it means that cities will be undercounted because city voters tend to be compressed into particular dense areas. And that means that in any system in which you have single member districts for the House of Representatives, they will tend to waste a lot of votes, right? You know, and so there'll be a few super blue urban districts. And then they'll win in those districts, the Democrats will win by 80 or 90%. But big deal. That means they only still get one house seat. Whereas there'll be a whole bunch of red districts in the suburbs and they'll win two or three or four house seats. They won't win by 80 or 90%. They'll win by 60 or 70%. But that means that the Republicans, if that's who's being represented in the less dense areas of the country will dominate the House of Representatives as well. Is that written into the Constitution? Well, it's written into any system that has single member districts. That part could be changed. Single member districts are not part of the Constitution. You could have a system in which the state of Illinois elected an entire congressional delegation by voting at large. That all could be done by Congress. And so certain bias um, that's built in against cities could be changed through legislation. But it's very unlikely that it'll ever happen because we've had this long tradition of single member districts. Other bias in the Senate and in the Electoral College, that's hardwired into the Constitution. It's almost impossible to get rid of it. For clarification, uh, the book by Jonathan uh, Roden, were you referring to Why Cities Lose? Yep, Why Cities Lose, a great book. You know, listen to your last answer. I'm sort of, I'm thinking back. So are we sort of at the, the inverse of Madison's concerns in Federalist 10, where we, where we now are potentially uh, on the brink of a tyranny of the, the minority? Oh, yeah. Um, I, we have a, a system set up that um, gives extraordinary weight to rural underpopulated states and rural or exurban underpopulated counties. They just carry much more of their weight. Some of that is the result of long political traditions like single member districts. Some of it is hardwired into the constitution. Um, but that is in effect giving the minority the power to veto the will of the majority. Um, and it's something that Madison was concerned about. Madison did say that he wanted to protect minorities in Federalist number 10. But shortly after the constitution was ratified in 1791, he became very worried that the constitution would actually empower minorities too much. He actually recanted on some of the stuff that he said in Federalist number 10. Um, so, you know, um, there, there's a sense in which the constitution's original design is a kind of original sin against democracy. So I'm hearing you say, um, get, you know, because none of the people who wrote the constitution could conceive of running water, let alone, you know, where we would be in 2022. Have we just outgrown federalism as they knew it? Well, it depends on who you mean by they. We mentioned Madison. The when they, yeah. when they originally agreed upon. Yeah. Madison was deeply upset by the Senate and the fact that senators um, got um, equal votes, even though their states had radically different populations. This actually sent him into a deep depression. And he thought that that was deeply unjust and a huge mistake. And he was right, um, but he was outvoted in the 18th century. So there was a deep disagreement, but um, to the extent that we think federalism requires 
the underpopulated states get extra votes. Sure, we didn't merely outgrow it. It was probably a bad idea from the beginning, or at least James Madison thought so. Um, but I would emphasize, there's nothing in the idea of dividing powers between a national government and a state government that requires Wyoming's voters to have 20 times as much voting power as California's voters. You could still divide power between Wyoming and the national government and not give Wyoming's voters more votes in the national government. I'll go one step further. You could say that giving underpopulated states extra voting power in the Senate actually tends to lead to more nationalism. And the reason for that is that if you live in an underpopulated state, it's in your interest to empower the national government because you have a lot of power to redistribute the national government's wealth to you. Wyoming gets a ton of subsidies, agriculture, ranching, energy from the national government. So of course they want a powerful national government. But if what you're trying to do is protect state powers, that makes no sense to say underpopulated states like Alaska or Vermont or Wyoming should get extra votes in the Senate. Instead, what you should simply say is, hey, Vermont, Alaska, Wyoming, you get to govern your own affairs. We'll make sure that you get to pass laws that only concern Vermont, Wyoming, and Alaska. That doesn't give you the right to use your senatorial votes to loot the rest of the country and get energy or farming subsidies. Professor Roger Hills, NYU uh, law professor, thank you so much for engaging us on the notion of federalism. Much appreciated, sir. I had a great time. Thank you so much for inviting me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.